the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. This is what it's come to. This is what it's come to. It. I was going to say, as I usually do, it is a great high honor and privilege and delight to welcome Pete Peterson back to the show. He, the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, a great institution. But I got to worry about his tastes a little bit because I was on Twitter the other day and I see my good friend Pete tweeting something about some band called The Specials and some other radio host. And kudos to that radio host for playing The Specials. And there's The Specials. And Pete, this is what you like? Seth, I'm I'm not embarrassed to say that uh, before this distinguished academic career began, I was once in a ska band that played that very song, Message to Rudy by The Specials. So, yes. David, it was it was an old '60s song originally, I think, wasn't it? I yeah, it was. They they redid it in the early '80s, I guess, late '70s. You were in a ska uh, band. I was in. A there ska is no band. one in the country who le- looks less likely to be in a ska band than you, Pete Peterson. <laughs> well, it was was in the early early days. It's like watching Robbie George play the banjo in his cufflinks. <laughs> Well, yeah, we had a, we had a band. Uh, some friends of mine used to play in uh, New York City back in back when I lived in in that area, and uh, it was called Shaken Not Stirred. That's and, a that's uh, a good name yeah. for a band, actually. It was. It was very very much of the the James Bond theme, which is common to the ska music, which I'm sure your ska music <laughs> band listeners know. <laughs> what was your instrument, Pete? I I was lead singer and uh, I played a little trombone as well. So. Trombone in the ska band. Okay, that's right. I, I think I'll stop asking questions along this line. <laughs> Have I ever asked you what your first concert was? Oh no, you haven't. It's a question uh, I often so- ask good friends, and it's surprise. I it's so I it just dawned on me. I don't think I've ever asked you what your first concert was. You know, it was um, and, and relevant to this subject. Oh, it was uh, it was UB forty. Oh, okay. And uh, another ska band uh, called the Untouchables from Los Angeles warmed up for them, and that that was a that was a formative experience in my own setting of uh, music case. Great, great show. Great Some show. of us think of UB forty as a Neil Diamond cover band. Yes. Well. The- that's that's what they're known for, but, but oddly and interestingly, for, for our I think he has a nephew in UB40. I think Neil Diamond's nephew actually is in UB40. I think I'm right oh, about really? that. Yeah, I think so, but go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, but UB40, as you might know, is the British unemployment form. It's it's The, the name UB40 comes from the 
form that people sign for unemployment and in signing that form and then withdrawing from unemployment to start this band, that's what they named the band after. So music brought people out of unemployment and into uh, into into the job market. So actually, a, a, a positive a positive story. A clever person like my general manager, Jim Ryan, might be thinking right about now, Seth, you have this great public intellectual on the show. If you don't get off UB40 and get to some topics of the day, you're going to be filling out a UB40 form. (laughs) But I couldn't help but joshing you. So that's your style. You like ska. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I have many tastes, but that certainly certainly is one of them. And, And Gorka was just for no reason playing that stuff? You know, uh, he happens to have a a penchant for 80s music. Yeah, I have a penchant for 80s music, too. It just so happens people have heard of the music. (laughs) Well, and he's British, of course, as well. And the the specials were uh, a British band. So I'm sure that he grew up with that uh, being a a hit song in the U.K. back in the early 80s. I got I want to talk to you about the academy for a little bit. Can we can we switch before we get into yes. too much more mutual trouble yes, here? Actually, you're you you're you're not going to get in trouble. You're the boss at Pepperdine. I'm going to get in trouble here. Pete Peterson, let me give him his due, folks. He is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, which we just love. I was talking uh, earlier in my monologue, um, Pete, about higher education and schools that are opening in the fall physically in schools that are just going to be doing Zoom. What is Pepperdine going to be doing, by the way? Do you guys have a thought yet? Well, the the plans have been announced. Uh, president Gash, who's the president of the University of uh, at Pepperdine, announced on Friday of last week that it is our plan uh, to begin classes on ground uh, on the Malibu campus and across the other uh, Pepperdine campuses while allowing that we are making a significant campus-wide investment in technology to make it possible to offer some classes online as well as on ground. But that's our intent. Good, good. I I didn't know that going into this, and I'm glad to hear it, and I I would have guessed it, uh, knowing the ethics around and surrounding Pepperdine. I would have guessed it, but I didn't know that, and I I wanted to wander into that open-ended question. Because uh, I don't know if you know my buddy, uh, uh, um, I, I think no relation, Matt Peterson over at the Claremont Institute. Oh, yes. He's actually taught for us. Uh, are yeah. you, you guys aren't related, though, are you? No, we're not. We're not. We're he not. had an That's interesting right. tweet yesterday, a five-part tweet. I read it. I you, yeah, I, I agreed with it. Can I do it with you for my audience, whether you agree or yeah, disagree? Sure. I'd love to hear you. He said for schools that aren't going to be, I'll just summarize, for schools that aren't going to be having physical classes, just Zoom or social media um, enabled classes, maybe take the year off. Maybe take the year off and read stuff. Now I'll quote him directly. Read stuff. Start with what deeply interests you and what matters. Read different kinds of stuff about it. Keep searching for better, deeper, older books. Ask for recommendations. Think about what you read. Talk about whether what you read. Whether you read stuff with friends or not, find people who are interested in the things you are reading about and talk to them about it. Also contact authors, experts, and people who know something about that stuff. I added to that, and I don't know if you agree, when you reach out to an author or expert on a topic or book, 
you'll be surprised how many times you'll get a response. A lot yeah. of people actually oh, yeah. like hearing from their audience, believe it or not. A lot of people are too intimidated to reach out to a professor that they may not have taken a class with or at a school. That's how I got to know Robbie George, by the way. I just wrote him a random email some 25, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, saying I read a book wow. of his. And, and he, you know, he we became lifelong friends from there. I like that yeah. advice. What do you think, Pete? Well, I think it's important to look at uh, a couple sides of this. One is, are we talking to high schoolers going into undergrad, right? And that's who I think Matt is is focusing on. Yes, he is, and that's a fair. That's a fair. School. Yeah, fair emendation. Right. Yeah. And and the difference therein is this discussion around opportunity cost, right? So we at the at the policy school we've seen a doubling of applications year over year just since the start of the pandemic, and I think that's largely because people in their early 20s are realizing that the job market in the fall may not be looking very good. And they're making a fairly rational decision to say, my opportunity cost may actually be as low this fall as any fall in the near future. So I'm going to invest in myself, so to speak, and return to graduate school. At the undergraduate level, and, and Matt's point, I think he certainly makes a very valid argument. I would only caution to say that there still is that opportunity cost element uh, to that as well. Yes. I mean, the job market situation, and I know Matt isn't saying explicitly, in fact, I think he says at one point, you may have to take a lower rung job. Yes. Um, he does in, in a field that you're interested yes. in. Yes, he Those he didn't use the word available. lower rung, but yes, you, you and I dressed that word up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when we read <laughs> it. Right. Yes, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I think you, I think it, that has to be assessed as well. All right, is are are there going to be those kinds of of jobs available? Um, you know, for students. But I, I do I do take Matt's point that the online learning experience, especially in massive classes, is not one really conser- uh, conducive to really deep learning in the way that Matt is proposing. Right, right, so I, right, right, right. And it also depends. Point. It's fascinating to my audience, as it is me, as I know it is you, because you're in higher education, too. So what Matt Peterson at the Claremont Institute was saying about taking a year off. Yes, undergraduates. Um, and and the qualifier I put on it was it depends on what you want your college education, your undergraduate, your baccalaureate education to be for. If it's for a credential, yeah. maybe it's not actually very good advice. Maybe it's not. But right. if it's right. just for gaining or perceivably gaining wisdom, yeah, there's a lot of different options now than just going to college X, Y, or Z. You know, I think that's a very fair point, and and that is one that um, it, is a it's a good pair of lenses through which to look at these decisions. I think it is a fair argument to say that over the last twenty years, we've we placed such a premium on the immediate transition of eighteen year olds into college, right? And um, we haven't, I don't think, really examined as as much as we should um, if that's really the best process for maturing and preparing 
the next generation of American citizens, which, of course, has always been the classical understanding of, right. of higher education. But that, I think that, that differentiation between credential immediately into the job market or next stage of education uh, versus education for preparation's sake, then, then Matt's argument, I think, uh, carries more weight. And yet there's, right, I agree with you, and yet there is this tension, isn't there, uh, Pete, that um, we, we always would advise people to credential up, anyone we advise, anyone we would mentor, we would advise to credential up as, mu- as best as possible. I'm guessing a lot of jobs, I can't tell you if the answer is most or not anymore, but a lot of jobs do require certain degrees or credentials. And yet my heart is with my friend, our friend, Dennis Prager, who says the least important thing you can ever tell me about you is that you went to college or where. Yeah. My heart is there, but I still, if someone wants to call me snobby or not, too, that's fine, too. But I don't want to discourage credentialing. But I guess the best way to come about that tension, in my own view, is to know what you're getting into and what you have to do to supplement, right? No, that's so right, Seth. And I, and I think also embedded in Dennis's remark there is an understanding that where you went to college is somehow indicative of intelligence, right? Which yeah. is to say, right. or character. I think it does, it, it does behoove us all, especially as we're mentoring the next generation or our parents of that next generation, that the headlong rush towards the Ivy Leagues, for example, mm-hmm. um, is 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 not the right advice. Right. right. And and to really try to there is such a variety of higher education experiences from great small liberal arts colleges <laughs> to faith based institutions to great state institutions where you can find your way through. I mean, there are some great programs there at Arizona State. You bet there are. You bet. That I would advise a good, conservative, faith-based kid coming out of high school to say, actually, ASU, if you find these ways through, that could be a good preparation. You bet. Critchlow and some guys have some great programs here at ASU. Exactly. Don's work there and Paul Carisi. Right, Paul. Absolutely. They're actually miracles. They're actually miracles. And, and, you know, kudos to our president for, you know, giving his full support to that. You have to find those, right? Right. And and be very intentional about them rather than just saying, you know, my kid's going to Harvard or Stanford or whatever the school is, to be very intentional about making sure you're matching that higher education experience if that's the direction you're going to go to the student. Because there Um, is something a little weird and sad and I don't know why. Maybe I don't have the right words for it. But, you know, you read in the news today, you see this Lori Laughlin is 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 being sentenced for bribing mm-hmm. to get her kid into USC. And, you know, I right. know a lot of fine USC grads, but my gosh, you know, yep. for whales. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for whales. No, I know. I know. It, it is. It's an amazing uh, story right here in Southern California. Right. Uh, right. Uh, and uh, again, that is a. That is a striving for the badge as opposed to the impact right. of the actual education experience. And I think if we think back on, if you remember some of the 
the videos that came out from some of those kids that were implicit in it, yep. it, it seemed obvious to anyone who watched those videos that the educational experience was really not important to the kids either. Right. right? That's so, right. So thinking about that side of the equation as well. Wasn't some of the experience, I, I you, you may not know off the top of your head, I'm going back on memory working off maybe 20 years or so, Pete. Wasn't some of the experience that led to Proposition 209 in California that there was a mismatch of schools and students, too, that it's one fine thing to brag about what you can get on the in, on the acceptance. But, you know, if you're going to just drop out in a year or two or fail out in a year or two, there's there's no real value in that. And some of 209 corrected a bit of that, didn't it? Well, and I think the, the, the broader point about judging programs by their outcomes right. and even calling into question the entire higher education system by its outcomes. I think we've done a woeful job, for example, in California, even at the community college level, right? The, right. the community college is seen as, you know, it's that great next step and into the, the broader four-year system here in California and the whole California master plan. But when you look at a lot of the data, the, the percentages of students who begin the community college system and don't graduate mm-hmm. within five to seven years are immense, yeah, right? Right. And so we really do need to be asking those questions of, are we forcing kids into places where they're not set to succeed and they may not even want to succeed? They may nice want point. a different career That's path. a really good point. That's a really. Can I talk to you about why we say these things about these? Uh, this George Will column about law schools now and the Federalist Society, yes. all that stuff. By the way, email just came in from listener Nick. He likes rockabilly too. This dude is cool and my new favorite guest: Dale Watson, Junior Brown, <laughs> Stray Cats, Reverend Horton Heat. Come on, ah, Seth, get with it. <laughs> cigar store Indians. There we go. <laughs> cigar store Indians. And yet I persist with this stuff. Pete, you you uh, you tweeted um, a column that um, kind of kind of instantiates, if you will, I think that's the right word, what we're talking about with the problem in higher education. Uh, this time having to do with a law school club called the Federalist Society, a law school organization called the Federalist Society, where there is now uh, an effort by the. Um, Judicial Conference of the United States to anathematize people who now it hasn't passed yet, but it's proposed to anathematize people who join this organization, the Federalist Society, as if it's some kind of retrograde throwback to, I don't know, antediluvian. I I don't know what they think it is, but but it ain't what they think it is. (laughs) Right. <laughs> Nor is it as powerful as they think it is. I remember one of the founders, Clint Bullock, was on Washington Journal one day, and he got a nasty call from some woman saying, you Federalist Society people run the entire judiciary. And he had a great response. You know, he said, he said, boy, I wish. <laughs> yeah. No, that's so true, Seth. And, and this piece that of wills that I, you know, highly recommend everybody reading shows that Really, it's it's a movement by the left to once again squelch free expression and free association. Right. Right. And one of the points that Will makes is that the Federalist Society is is not a lobbying organization. No. Um, it's it's really a, a gathering of folks um, who, in many ways, 
Uh, it could be seen even more as a debating society, it really is. but one that yeah. actually allows yeah. both sides of yeah. issues to be discussed. Yeah. Um, whereas a group that's extolled as, as one apparently worthy of membership is the American Bar Association, right. Right. which obviously has its own lobbying arm, mm-hmm. and in many ways is an organization that is more on the left side of the aisle. So. It, it was good of George to pick this up. It's kind of in the minutiae, as you say, of, of these regulations by an organization that most people outside of the legal profession don't know exists. But it really is one of those bright lights in, in law schools and beyond the federal society uh, that, that, that does allow and encourage not only conservative viewpoints, but actually debate. Debates within the conservative legal philosophy as well as debates between left and right. I will tell you, when right. every Federalist Society event I've ever attended was actually a left, almost always a left-right debate or a, what might be considered a left-right debate. So to your point that it's more of a debating society almost than anything else, true. And I've been to a few where it's right-right debates, you know, different versions, not every conservative. I mean, there's libertarian thinking within conservative legal circles. There's all kind. There's originalist thinking. There's natural law thinking. You know, it, there's, there's a lot to debate in legal theory and legal philosophy, and that's that's what they do best, quite frankly, in a, in a, in a world or a, in a form of academia that doesn't lend itself to much of that. But, yeah, the left, the liberals, the ABA, the uh, Judicial Conference of the United States, they look at the Federalist Society. Um, they, they try and cast it in, in a very weird way, much like, you know, uh, maybe it was like being a member of a communist society in the 50s or something and, and, and how anathematized you'd be for joining that. You can't get a job if you were a member of the Federalist Society. It's the most ridiculous thing in the world. I mean, you know, it, it was founded by people who would share the majoritarian viewpoint of today's Supreme Court. Well, you're so right, Seth. And, and, and again, we need to look just at the origins. You know, the Federalist Society has only been around since the early 80s. Right. And it was really begun out of this idea that conservative law students didn't have a place where they could connect with others uh, to exchange and debate ideas, but it has never been, and they're very scrupulous about this, never been an organization that has sought to directly lobby for particular uh, legal mandates or lobby government for particular regulations. Uh, But you're right, it it really does uh, show a move by some on the left to squelch this uh, debate and, and the, this exchange of ideas and, and, frankly, the freedom of association, as I said before. And taint people from getting a job, frankly, for a membership in an organization. I mean, what does that sound like to you, right, Pete? My gosh. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a blacklist. Yeah, it's a blacklist way. all over again. Pete, I loved one of these tweets you had here. You said, maybe one way to evaluate California public policy around COVID-19 when Florida's policies make U.S. look uptight and uncool, we might want to reconsider. Yeah, right? Yeah. People forget no, I mean, the population it, of Florida. Ways, yeah. yeah, I know. I, I, and by uh, U.S., I meant us in, in California. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think, I think that really what this has demonstrated through the wonders of federalism is how different states are reacting to their own conditions. But, of course, California always views itself to be hip, cool, mm-hmm. 
not really affected by stress, you know, that kind of deal. But, boy, I tell you, when you look at our policies, um, whether it's the fact that you can go in the ocean but can't go in the beach, mm-hmm. right? Right. We look, we look uptight and uncool and, frankly, strange. And I, it, it's, uh, it's not something that we'd necessarily teach as an evaluative metric at the policy school. But, you know, as, as uh, Bill McClay, our, our friend in common, mm-hmm. always says, you know, that it, this, these policies are created out of community identity. Mm-hmm. And, and California, I think, is, is really, frankly, wrestling with its identity in the policies that we put forward that have been so restrictive and so, frankly, um, scared uh, that that other states have reacted differently and are seeing are seeing fairly positive results. Florida's a miracle story. I mean, people don't realize the demographics of it. I don't think very well, at least in comparison to say New York. It's of course a bigger state population wise, has an older yep. population than New York, which is the um, the demographic group most negatively affected by COVID nineteen. They actually have more older people in in Florida than uh, New York. And believe it or not, it's also, I know you know this, but a lot of people don't, it's also more ethnically diverse than New York. And they have nothing like the numbers of New York, even though they went into shutdown later with a lighter touch and opened earlier. So what do they get? They get the condemnation of the crisis industrial complex rained down on them. And, I, you know, there, there is something odd about this COVID thing that people have to have to toe a line that unless you are willing to roll up in a ball and hide under your bed, you are a threat to the public health of this country. And this audience isn't having it. I know you're not having it. And then there's this other thing. You and I worry about censorship. You know, I've always talked about, since the beginning of this, I've talked about the ancillary uh, after effects of, of shutdowns and isolation, as you've taught me to think about it as well, Pete. And I get censored on, on, on social media for talking about these things. There is a major hospital in Walnut Creek, you know where that is, that is now yeah, reporting sure. more suicide deaths than COVID-19 deaths. If I say yeah. that, I get censored on YouTube. No, you're absolutely right, Seth. The, the, the politicization of these policies, you know, I'm thinking another thing as well that's happening is, you see a state like Colorado, yep. which is a kind of purplish, bluish state, yep. taking in many instances many of the same policy positions that Florida has taken. You don't hear anything about Colorado putting its citizens at risk in the same degree that you're seeing what you're seeing about Florida and Georgia. And so even when states are taking similar positions, the fact that just one happens to be a so-called red state and the other is a a purplish or blue state just really shows how the media is about politicizing these standpoints. But that other point that you're making as well about the public health trade-offs on both sides of the equation, the fact that we've been told forever that there's only one side to the political or to the public health debate, and that is on COVID deaths, while not really seriously taking into account the other side as we talked about many many times we're just going to continue to learn that other side of that equation and how dramatic the impact has been in the months ahead yeah and i wonder if there's going to be any accountability for it it's not the most important part of this 
But it is an important part of it when you think about what people like you and people like me and a few others have been saying about this and the lambasting we've taken for it. Because I don't, I don't think there was a group of doctors, 600-some doctors, wrote an wrote a open letter to the president yesterday. It was really very, very good. And they made the point that, you know, a death from suicide or heart attack or lack of early cancer detection or opioid overdose is no less meaningful to family and friends than a death from COVID-19. And yet those of us who are concerned about those deaths, too, seem to be told that we're we're living under a rock. Truth is, we've been on those cases as you have been on those cases for years and years and years and years. And it's almost a welcome to the party, pal, to these COVID-19 crisis mongers. I'm glad you finally care about public health. But let's get on board with serious public health if you're going to lecture us, huh? No, you're right, Seth. And of course, the other the other part of that as well is we're beginning to realize how the actual so-called COVID deaths have been evaluated, yep. right? Yep. And uh, and and not to dismiss at all the seriousness. This is this has obviously been a historic uh, pandemic. It has had historic yep. impact. Yep. But we just saw the governor of Colorado reduce the number of deaths that they had listed due to COVID because. It was not the determining factor. It was an ancillary exactly. factor exactly. to the fatality. And I think we're going to continue to see clear reporting about this uh, again in the months ahead. Pete Peterson, you give me confidence and faith and encouragement. I thank you for your time. I thank you for your stewardship of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. I thank you for everything. You're just a delight to talk to. And to you, Seth. Great thank to be with you as always. God bless you, sir. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Jerry Boyer of Town Hall Finance for townhall.com. The presidential election might not be until November, but another election season has already started. America's largest corporations are now holding annual shareholder meetings, and we should all be paying attention. One to track closely is on May 27th, when Amazon's investors are going to be asked to vote on whether to end Amazon's practice of outsourcing its charitable screening to the left-wing Southern Poverty Law Center. By relying on these biased activists, Amazon has excluded Christian charities, such as the Family Research Council, from the list of options which customers can support via Amazon's Smile program. As a publicly traded company, Amazon is ultimately subject to its shareholders. If you're invested in Amazon, you're an owner. You should speak out. There's an election on May 27th, and it will determine whether one of the largest corporations in the world can treat Christianity as a hate group. I'm Jerry Boyer. ADF, fighting for those whose religious freedom is being violated. Start at townhallreview.com. This is Hugh Hewitt for townhall.com. The dangerous world we are looking at today serves as an appropriate backdrop for our expression of gratitude for those who have died in the service of our nation. From the time of our nation's founding to today, well over 1.2 million Americans have paid the ultimate price in the service of our country. Today is a day for us to say thank you. It's also a day for us to dedicate ourselves. In 1863, Lincoln called our country to an unfinished work. 
and in many respects, we remain an unfinished work. Our commitment, the commitment of the living, the values and freedoms our honored veterans fought for makes clear that they did not die in vain. To those who have served or are serving today, a grateful nation says thank you. And to those listening who have lost a loved one who died in this great cause, a special thanks to you. And a heartfelt civilian salute from me and all my friends here at the Salem Media Group. Happy Memorial Day. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Impacting policy decisions today. Preparing public leaders for tomorrow. 